1: This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on
2: WTDI. How do you
1: like that? The fault,
3: dear Buddhist, is not in our stars, but in ourselves.
2: Good luck. on because you're in for a harrowing ride because i am the narrator the voice that guides the blind following not with your ears but your mind and allow me to take you back on four through time to explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now but won't further down the line
0: Today, we're going to hear from Shanti, one of my favorite spiritual teachers, a relatively young American who has a wonderful gift for speaking about the unspeakable in very simple language. The subject of this talk is Freedom Beyond Consensus Reality.
4: Good morning. We all live in this thing called social construct. You ever noticed I hope you've noticed because you've been living in it pretty much your whole life. I suppose you could call it a kind of conventional or agreed upon reality that we find ourselves in. And we're so habituated to it, it seems so normal. It certainly seems to be agreed upon, that we don't even know that we're existing within this sort of agreed upon reality. Not that it's actually real in any way, but it's something that we all just agree upon. We pretend like it's true because it's, I was gonna say it's a useful fiction, but that's debatable, is it not? It's debatable of how well this fiction we have going is actually functioning for us all. But I think a lot of times we look for obvious kind of illusions, obvious kinds of beliefs that aren't working for oneself. But what we don't often see is the kind of consensus Reality or the consensus unreality that has been so much part of what we've grown up in our whole lives that we never really question it. We never really re examine it, you know. We're just sort of subject to it. So you just go along with it. And you don't even know what you're going along with. I mean, some of this is really quite simple. It's sort of self evident, but it seems like we don't often look at things that are self evident. Even the words we use for things. These are just agreed-upon quasi-realities that have no real basis in anything other than an abstract idea of the way things are. We call something outside the window, there's a tree. So we all agree there's a tree, and it's so obvious to us that trees are something that exists that we don't even question whether there are trees. Of course there are trees, you just have to look outside and you see this thing with a trunk and branches and leaves, and any idiot knows that there's a tree outside, so we never even question it. And each thing we define by what it's not. Right, So, of course, you can only know what a tree is because you've unconsciously, you define it by what it's not. Well, the tree, of course, isn't the ground, it's not the sky, it's not the rain, it's not the sunshine, it's a tree. It's this green leafy thing, you see. And so we think that there is such a thing called a tree. And that it actually is really different from the ground and the sky and the water and everything else that you could name. But, of course, none of this makes sense, does it? It might seem to make sense because it's so habitual, because we all agree upon it, because we've been socialized into it. But, of course, you can't think of a tree without a ground for it to grow in, can you? Such a thing would be ridiculous. You can't think about a tree without rain. There would be no tree without rain. There would be no tree without the sky. You could go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. So a tree really isn't just this thing that grows up out of the ground. The tree is as much the ground and the rain and the sky as it is anything else. And yet we think there's this thing that exists independent of all of that called a tree. But of course that can never be true, can it? Because as I said, you cannot have a tree without the sky overhead. You cannot have a tree without ground and you cannot have a tree without water. So in a very real sense, the tree is all of that. A tree is all of the stuff that we don't define tree by. If You go in a dictionary and you look up what a tree is, what you'll find is an abstract definition of something that cannot possibly exist. I'm not denying that, you know, when you go outside and you bump into something that has a trunk in it and leaves and all these, I'm not denying, of course, that that exists, whatever that is, that would be ridiculous. Things that you, when you were a kid you climbed up in them and. When you got to be an adult, you got anxious when other people climbed up in them. (laughs) This is the most basic level of our experience, isn't it? And so we live in these abstractions, and we don't even know we're living in an abstraction. This abstraction that says a tree is by definition different from the earth and the ground and the water and the sky, and of course it can't be, because if you take any of those elements away there's no such thing as a tree. So it can't exist independently of that. You can't define it independently of that. But if you look in the dictionary, you will find it defined independently of all the things that make up a tree. As if there's this thing that exists independent of all the things that make up a tree. Really, what makes up a tree is the whole universe. That's what makes up a tree. A single tree. A leaf, for God's sake. It takes a universe to make a leaf. It takes a whole cosmos to make a leaf. And of course, if we went around calling everything what it really is, well, then we wouldn't be able to really know what each other's talking about, would we? Do you know? Oh, there's a cosmos out there, and you see it. And then there's a cosmos there, and it's raining cosmic stuff today, and, you know, it would all be kind of ridiculous. It wouldn't work out very well. So we make up these names so we all know what each other's referring to, right? I was going to say that's not that great of a consequence, and we name something something like a tree, and, Think that it's separate from all these other things. But that's wrong, isn't there? There's a great consequence when we see a tree is separate from all those things, because then we go about degrading all these things and we wonder why the trees don't do so very well. But when we take that same observation, initially it seems like it's a self-evident observation, but it can seem strange because we're so habituated into something different. We're so habituated into seeing the world in these little pieces, right? And things are the names we give them. And they are very distinct from each other, and they don't actually, so we think, they don't actually depend on each other. Not only do they not depend on each other, but they're not actually each other, so we think. That's what we've been raised with in a certain way. And of course, all this doesn't even take any kind of great scientific analysis. This all breaks down under the most simple observation. And strangely enough, it can seem so odd to our sensibilities, Do you know, it can seem so almost unreasonable. Do you know, like the mind would go, well, yes, everything you say is true, but by God, there's a tree outside, you see? It's totally unreasonable to say there's not a tree outside. I mean, what is this? And of course, when you look at it, you can see the whole way that we define something as simple as a tree is somehow removed from everything else as a complete abstraction. This is what I mean when I call it a conventional or agreed upon reality. So it's one thing when it's a tree, of course, that seems somewhat benign. When we take this same observation and we take it very close to heart, what's our greatest abstraction that human beings carry around? The greatest abstraction, you know what I mean by an abstraction? Every single idea that we have in our heads, you and I, every single idea, there are no exceptions to this, is an abstraction. It's an abstract thing in the sense that the idea itself has no fundamental reality to it. If you take just an idea of an orange but you remove the round little spherical thing, then the idea of the orange is a total abstraction. That's why you go to another country, they call it something different. They don't call it an orange. So clearly the idea orange is a complete abstraction. You could call it anything you wanted to actually. It's the spherical thing. That orange spherical thing that's a curious combination of sweet and a little bit of sour when you bite into it, that's the reality. And that little thing, of course, is made up out of sun and earth and sky and, well, just about everything else in the universe. That little round thing, you think, oh, it's an orange, it's not very interesting, you know, it costs too much at the produce market. When we start to see the abstractions, of course, the one abstraction that we don't look at often very closely is that abstraction of ourselves, right? You can say, well, of course, everything I think about an orange isn't the same as an orange, you see, because the orange will exist whether I think about it or not. Like a cup of water, I can not think about this at all, I can not call it anything, and it's going to exist whether I call it something or not call it something. And then we take that same observation and we bring it very close to home. And you start to see that everything you know about yourself is an abstraction. It's a thought in your head, that's all it is, it's just a thought. Everything we think we know about ourselves is a thought. Don't believe me, just try to think about yourself without thinking about yourself. It's ridiculous, isn't it? You can't think about yourself without thinking about yourself. Are you good or bad or right or wrong? if you don't think about it, if you don't enter into the land of abstraction. And so this is the primary human cause of difficulty, of suffering, is that human beings, for the most part, we tend to live in an abstracted idea of ourselves not only do we of course we live in an abstracted idea of the world of course but we live in an abstracted idea of ourselves so just like a tree when we think about ourselves we don't think about ourselves as the ground and the soil and the sky above and the sun or the rain or the clouds or much less the person next to you or the food you eat each day to keep yourself going, and the water you drink, of course, we think of ourselves as somehow different from all of that. Which is odd, isn't it? Because if you take any one of those elements away, you do not exist anymore. And we would find that out very quickly. Just take the water away and see how well you do. But we don't think of ourselves that way, do we? That's not part of our abstraction, to think of ourselves as part of everything else. Maybe if you get sort of very you know, spiritually idealistic or something, oh yes, I'm part of everything else, you know. But most people that say that, they don't actually believe it. They don't actually experience it. It's another abstraction. It's an abstraction of unity, you know, it's an idea of unity. So most people's idea of unity is, well, when I experience unity, I'll be in this wonderful state of bliss. Now, what does bliss have anything to do with unity? Unity is simply seeing the way that everything is, that nothing can be separated from everything else. Nothing can be separated from anything else. That's unity. Of course, you can understand that as an abstract idea, and of course, it doesn't change anything, does it? You don't feel any fundamental change, it doesn't have any effect upon you because it's just an abstraction. When you experience that, then it's something very different. It's something very different when you look up into the sky and you suddenly feel yourself to be part of the sky, not as some sort of new age idealistic dream, but as just an actual fundamental reality. When you look at the world around you and you see, you don't see it as an abstraction, then you feel yourself to be very much part of it. One doesn't feel themselves then to be encased within this small little bag of skin. But of course, being encased in a small little bag of skin, that's not people's fundamental problem. They're encased in something much smaller than that which is their ideas that run around within that little bag of skin, their ideas about themselves. That's even smaller. It's even more isolating, you could say. And yet this is something that if we actually care to look at it, it doesn't take a great degree of observation. It just takes a brief moment of just being able to look at the nature of experience. But as I said, human beings tend to think they live in abstraction. We get taught this thing called language, don't we? language. You get a name, somebody puts it into your programming, and then you've got a name, and that's very exciting when you realize you have a name. Oh, lovely, I got a name. For a minute there, I thought I was the whole universe, but now I got a name. (laughs) I'm a name, and and I like having a name, because then I fit in well, because everybody else has a name, and they seem to be doing smashingly well with having a name, and so I'm glad I got one. Of course, if you grow up and you don't like the name, then you change your name. But this is where human beings live, do they not? They live in this little abstraction. We call it ego. Of course, an ego is just an idea too, isn't it? I've never seen anybody show me an ego. I've never seen it. I mean, you know, I can show you. A glass of water refers to this, okay? What does your ego refer to? Uh, ideas about ego? It doesn't refer to anything. It's There are ideas that refer to things in the world, right? The things that they refer to are much more interconnected than the labels would make them seem like a tree as soon as we say tree. The word tree refers to something, doesn't it? Unfortunately, the word tree doesn't refer to everything a tree is because then we'd be talking about the whole cosmos. But at least it has a reference to something, or a glass of water has a reference to something. But in ego, it only has a reference to another idea. So there are ideas that reference something actually real, something concrete, and then there are ideas that reference only other ideas. So ego is one of those ideas that only references more ideas. The only way you define ego is by more ideas about ego or you have a certain kind of behavior, and somebody says, that's an egoic behavior, you see, you're being very egoic right now. But if you say, well, where is the ego that's being very egoic, they'll say, well, we don't know, We, we can't find it, nobody's ever found it before. We're sure it exists because we've been talking about it for hundreds of years now, so it has to be around here somewhere, but nobody seems to be able to find it. Why can't we find it? I would suggest we can't find it because it's an abstract idea in our minds. Of course, it's made up of many abstract ideas in your mind. Once you get enough of these abstract ideas bouncing around in your mind, and of course you have this other part, this whole body, and your body is responding to all these ideas in your mind. But once you get enough ideas that refer to other ideas, that refer to other ideas, that refer to other ideas, before you know it, it starts to produce something in you. It's very amazing actually, when you get enough ideas in your mind that define you, at a certain point it starts to produce this thing that we call self-consciousness. You start to feel self-conscious. In other words, oh, here I am. Enough ideas start to produce a basic sense of self-consciousness. And then, of course, the self-consciousness will produce more ideas. And then it's a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, it's a sort of catch-22, you know? That you have a whole lot of ideas that then give you the sense or the feel of self-consciousness, and because you have a sense or a feel of self-consciousness, you keep generating more ideas that define your self-consciousness. That makes sense? Relatively straightforward, I think. One could think, well, this whole talk is very abstract. This whole talk is not helping me in any way whatsoever. (laughs) in which case I would have great sympathy for you and you may actually be completely correct. It may be completely worthless. I think it does have great implications when it comes to one's life, of course, because we can, of course, go through our entire life thinking that we're nothing but this collection of ideas in our head that we call an ego. And then you get into spirituality and then you're trying to transcend this thing that doesn't exist, trying to let go of it. So have you ever tried to let go of something ever worked for you? It seems to me that when I hold something very tightly in my hand, I could call that trying. And it doesn't seem that I'm trying when I open my hand. It seems like the opposite of trying. But if I'm trying to let go, it seems like it only causes me to hold on more tightly. But I'm really trying. I'm very sincere. I'm trying to let go. Have you ever thought about these things before? Even the way we talk to ourselves? I'm trying to let go. Really? What could that possibly mean? I think that means you're not letting go. Yes, but I'm trying to. No, you're not, actually. You're holding on. I'm trying to surrender. I'm working very, very hard at it. I'm trying to let go of control. Isn't the trying just a form of control? And so we wonder, my God, I start to get so confused after a while. You know, You get into spirituality and you can feel much more confused than you started out to begin with. At least before you begin, you just had an illusory idea of yourself. And now you have an illusory idea of yourself that you're trying to let go and you think you should be surrendering, so you're trying to surrender, which is another contradiction, and you pile up all these contradictions up inside of your being and then you wonder, why do I feel so rotten? Of course, if you see this, you know, because to see it is different than to understand something, isn't it? It's the difference between being told what an orange tastes like and tasting an orange. The two totally different things. In fact, they have no relationship almost at all. So when we see something or we taste it, you could say, we experience it. When we experience letting go, then there's never any sense of trying to let go, is there? When we experience surrender, then we're by very definition, when we're tasting it, when we're feeling it, we're no longer trying to surrender, are we? But what makes that happen? That's what so many people would like to know. Well, how do you surrender? But of course, the question itself basically wants to make, how do I surrender? How do I hold on in such a way that I let go? Now, if somebody puts a burning hot coal in your hand, you don't sit around asking, my dear boy, how do I let go of this? Somebody puts a burning hot coal in your hand, it's out of your hand as fast as, now that's letting go. Now, why do you let go of a hot coal in your hand? Of course, it's burning your hand. And so you have a natural tendency to let go, and because it's burning your hand, you have no illusion that there's anything in it for you to continue to hold on. In other words, it will only be pain. You won't suffer pain for a while and then break through into some magical state of, this feels fantastic. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm glad I didn't let go. It burned for a while, but now it's like, feels like the most fuzzy, lovely thing I've ever put in my hand. There's no illusion like that, is there? There's nothing in you that thinks there's anything that's going to be gained from holding on to this thing that's burning you. So, of course, you just let go. If someone says, yes, but how did you do that? What would you say to them? I don't know. How did I let go? I don't know how I let go. It was burning me. That's how I let go. There was nothing in it for me. That's how I let go. It's sort of a graphic, immediate sense of, as an addict would say, bottoming out. When the addict bottoms out, what does that actually mean? All it means is, there's absolutely nothing in this for me anymore. Nothing. That's bottoming out. There's absolutely nothing in this. All the denial breaks down. There's absolutely nothing in this for me. And so that's when you begin to drop it as if you would drop a burning coal. You drop it because there's nothing in it for you. Not because it's spiritual or, or noble, it's not noble to hit bottom, is it? It's not impressive, it doesn't look nice, it doesn't look pretty, but it's the moment when you realize there's absolutely nothing in this for me. There's only pain, there's only suffering, and everything else I've ever told myself about it is a lie. It's only going to be painful, and of course, there's the moment you see that then, for an addict, that's the beginning of the recovery. So when people say, how do I let go, really, you only let go when you see that there's nothing in it for you. That's when you let go. And before that instant, nobody lets go. That doesn't mean we have to suffer terribly. Suffering just means we're resisting reality. That's all it means. That's an indication. When you're psychologically suffering, it's an indication you're moving in a way that's contrary to the reality of things. That's all suffering is. I'm moving against the currents of life, and there's no way to successfully move against the currents of life without suffering. So if something is happening, and you say, I don't want this to happen, but it is happening, you're gonna suffer, because you're moving against the currents of life. It's very simple. That's why if anybody just wanted to stop suffering today, psychologically, emotionally, just stop suffering, then you just stop moving against the current of your life, past and present. Easy thing to say, isn't it? Just stop doing that. But of course, we only stop doing that when we see that there's nothing in it for us. So in spirituality, at least is the way I talk about it, the way I present it, is there's, two fundamental components to the spiritual quest. There's the component of meditation. I would love to remove the word though because that has so many abstract ideas of what it's supposed to be. All meditation really is, is you just stop resisting what is. Then you're meditating. If you're doing anything other than that, you're struggling, simple. So what most people call meditation is actually struggle. It's a spiritual form of struggle. I'm struggling quietly without moving, without (laughs) complaining. I'll complain about it later when I go home, you know. Those dreadful 15 minutes, I barely made it, you know. It's awful. (laughs) But meditation is nothing more than the art of not struggling. That's all it is. You allow every experience to just unfold the way it's unfolding. And as soon as you do that, all of a sudden sitting there is no problem. It's really not a problem. Because really, it never was a problem. It was just our pushing against our experience that was a problem, pushing back against it. So, for many people, probably most people, their idea of meditation is nothing more than a way of pushing back against the experience they don't want to have. That's why they go, Tell me how to meditate. Why? Uh, well, because. I don't want to be experiencing what I'm experiencing. Well, sorry, go somewhere else. That's what they should tell you if they're honest. I'm afraid I can't tell you how to meditate if that's what your idea of meditation is. So this is one part of, and this is a huge part. If anybody wanted to come into a very quick state of well-being, all you got to do is let this is inside of what you call yourself and also to the entire world, just let it all be exactly the way it is. Just let it all be exactly the way it is. That's the shortcut. But since almost nobody wants to do that, nobody wants to let things be the way they are, right? I want them to be the way I want them. And by God, we can't just let the world be the way it is, you see, because then it'll turn into a disaster. And if it turns into a disaster, then, well, it might look a lot like it looks, oops today. <laughs> it's funny how we, we literally scare ourselves with the thing that's actually already happening. Well, if we just allow everything to be the way it is, my God, what would happen? Maybe I wouldn't help my neighbor, hmm, she seems to be a lot of that happening right now. You know, maybe I would just be self-obsessed, well, hmm around yourself. Maybe that would just mean I would like just sort of close out the world and do nothing to help anybody and just watch my TV all the time. <laughs> Gee, it sounds like a lot like the world we already have going here. So often we project our ideas, our fears. We project our ideas about what we think something's going to be. I would suggest that the instant that you actually allow something to be just the way it is, it gives rise to a tremendous sense of connectedness, a sense of well-being, and a natural and spontaneous sense of compassion and love. That's just what happens. That's what comes out of that. The abstract idea of to just let everything be the way it is, the abstract idea of that can seem quite contrary can seem to be something that's quite cut off and uncaring and you just wouldn't participate in the world and all that, but of course that's just the idea and people are terrified of that idea. But essentially, meditation is kind of just one expression, it's almost a metaphor for just allowing everything to be just the way it is. Just allow it to be. Why would would you do that? There's only one reason that you would allow everything to be just the way it is in this moment. is only one reason, by the way, that I could give you that's rational, which is that it is the way it is right now. That's the reason why. It's not abstract, it's not a great philosophy, isn't it? It doesn't promise you anything in the future. The only reason that you would allow this moment to be the way it is is because that's the way it is. And when you go contrary to the way it is, you upset yourself, and when you get upset, you start upsetting the people around you. So there's no deeper philosophical reason here. We're just coming into a harmony with life. Of course, in order to come into that harmony, in, in order to let even a moment, just a moment, be completely the way that moment is, in order to do that, we have to, for that moment, stop living in our abstractions, our abstract ideas about things, about how things could be, about how things should be, all of that, we have to stop living in that abstracted reality, which means literally an internal dream space, and come back into the concrete isness of the world and your own experience. That is essentially what meditation is. So when you sit in a chair, or however you sit, and it's quiet, and you don't have to do anything, then you get to see, okay. Am I actually allowing this moment to be the way it is? It doesn't matter how it is. You could feel upset. Your mind could be busy. Your mind could be quiet. You could feel very settled and grounded. You could feel somewhat fidgety. But when you sit down, you start to actually experience your fundamental relationship with life. That's what meditation shows you. It shows you very quickly, what's my relationship to life, to my experience? Am I constantly pushing against it? Am I trying to change it and control it? And how is that working out for me? Does that actually get me what I think it will get me, which is, do I get more peace and sense of well-being? Am I more loving? Am I more compassionate? Am I more happy when I'm pushing against my experience and the experience of the world all the time? How's that working out? Meditation will show you your relationship with life if you want to see it. But most people, when they sit down and meditate, they get so focused on their agenda, which means this is what I want to happen when I sit. I want it to feel this way and I want to experience this, that they never see that all they're doing is living out their preconceived agenda. So in a certain sense, all they're doing is enhancing their adversarial relationship with life. That's all, they're just enhancing it. If I focus on this thing really hard, then I can start to experience what I want. And that's very selfless and loving of me." So it shows you the relationship, your relationship with life. Even if you see, my God, I'm controlling, I want to change my experience, I don't want to be experiencing what I'm experiencing, I'm upset with life, I don't want it to be the way that it is, you see all that kind of stuff, that's fine. Even if you feel that way on a particular day, the question is, is can you just see it? Without judging it, you know, without making yourself wrong, even if you are struggling. Even if you are trying to change it, can you just see it? Can you ask yourself, how's this working out for me? Because at the end of the day, that's all that's relevant, isn't it? How is this working out? Is it giving me what I think it will give me? To have this relationship with life where I'm struggling, trying to control, trying to mold it to what I want it to be. Is this making me happy? This is what I find to be a vital ingredient because you can't change something just because somebody says you can change it, can you? You can't even change it because you want to change it necessarily. Things start to change when you see that a way that you're moving in life or moving within your own self, when you start to see for yourself it's not actually working out, it's not getting you what you want in other words. Maybe the relationship with life that you were taught Is the very kind of relationship that's causing the problem back to conventional reality the agreed-upon reality and of course in the country that we all live there's a beautiful part to this I'm very well aware and it's perfectly fine but we also have to see the counterpart to our obsession with if it's at all uncomfortable change it right I mean that drives our economy if you're at all uncomfortable, change it, do so, invent something for God's sake, make a widget so it's better. It's great for the economy, by the way. And it also spurs lots of innovation, there's lots of creativity that comes out of it, so I wouldn't want to say that there's no creativity that comes out of it, there's great ingenuity and creativity that comes out of it. And sometimes there's things that actually do help people that come out of it in a very profound way but also there's the backlash to it as well, isn't there? Because there's never the moment of when you get to be happy, be satisfied. So meditation, I think if it's done in a way that's really spiritually useful or profound, as I say, starts to show us our relationship with our experience and we get to see if it's working or not, how functional it is. And we also get to see a lot of the things that we were sold on. Because we human beings, we are, for the most part, we are junkies. You know, a junkie, an addict, they're not just somebody in the street corner, you know, or somebody you know that has a drug problem or an alcohol problem or somebody over there. If you look at your average person, Even your person that doesn't drink or smoke or take any drugs, you know, of course, in our country, it's really hard not to take a drug, you know, it's everywhere. But most of them will still be terrible, terrible addicts, literally addicted to things that hurt them psychologically, emotionally, physically, biologically, literally hurt them. They destroy them bit by bit, day by day. We're addicted to things that we don't even know we're addicted to because we view them as so much a part of what's necessary to be happy that we don't view our addiction as part of the problem. I'll give you an example of this. I will be happy when someone just notices me. Then I'll be happy. Why can't somebody just understand me? If I was just understood, If someone would just listen to me, for God's sake, enough to where I felt understood, then I would be happy. Of course, anybody likes being understood, right? I imagine everybody in this room likes being understood. But as soon as you have to be understood to be happy, you're a junkie. You're an addict. You're addicted to being understood. And you think, if I don't get this understanding, if I don't get my drug, then I won't be happy. And so I go around my whole life looking for people that will understand me. In other words, I'm looking for drugs to take. They're just people, you know. If I'm appreciated, if someone appreciates me, I can't appreciate myself, so I'll look for everybody else to appreciate me. And if they can't or they don't appreciate me, then I will feel all the symptoms of withdrawal. I'll get agitated, I'll get nervous, I might get angry, I might get depressed. These are all familiar, they're all the symptoms of addiction. When you don't get your addiction met, you biologically start to feel a little antsy. Your system feels like somebody's scratching it on a chalkboard inside. Of course, in our society, you know, everybody wants to be a celebrity. If enough people know me, if enough people love me, then I'll be happy. But of course, that's another addiction that doesn't end up to be true, does it? As we see all the time when some of these poor celebrities every now and then, well, actually with great regularity, they get the very thing they wanted, they get the biggest drug they ever wanted, they get this great celebrity, and then once they've got their drug in huge supply, then they have this crushing realization that comes upon them, which is, it doesn't make me happy. And so the next thing you know, they're in the newspaper of some tremendous crash, or they start taking drugs, or whatever, they have this great fall from grace. Can you imagine, like most people have all these ideas, if I get this, then I'll be happy. If I get enough money, if I get enough approval, if I get enough people loving me, then I'll be happy. No, just imagine you got two or three of those things in great measure, that you thought your whole life would make you happy, and just imagine you have them. You're wealthy, lots of people love you, lots of people esteem you. And then all of a sudden you wake up on that day and imagine this, all those things you thought were going to make you happy and you finally got them. You were one of the 1% or half of 1% or whatever. And all of a sudden you, you realize, and I'm still unhappy. Okay, now where are you going to turn? Can you see what the crushing kind of blow that would be? At least your average person, they get to fall back on, well, I really don't make enough money to be happy. And I haven't had enough people love me. And I haven't, you know, at least they can fall back in the illusion that maybe if I could, or you look at somebody that has a great fall when they seem to have everything and you, you know, it's a very human thing to look at them and you go, well, if I get that, I'll be happy. They're miserable, but me, I'd be different. Can you imagine the great angst that would be there if you got everything you thought would make you happy and you realized you weren't any happier than when you didn't have it? Like where would you turn? What would you do? It's like a drug addict that had an infinite supply of drug and all of a sudden they wake up and they go, I'm miserable, it doesn't make any difference. Of course such a person either implodes, they kind of destroy themselves, or they really start to see something deeper. Oh. I was taught to be addicted to these things, to really believe that I needed them. I was taught that I needed to be approved of, I was taught that I needed to be understood, I was taught that I needed to be held in high esteem, I was taught these things. And in the teaching of them, I literally became biologically addicted to them. And now I realize that what I was taught, what I was sold, was just basically a bunch of drugs. And they don't make me happy. By the way, of course you like it when someone understands you, I do. Of course you like it when someone loves you, I like it. Of course you like it when someone esteems you, I gotta admit, that one makes me feel a little weird. Because generally, if you're held in too high esteem, you know immediately that you're just living as a projection in the person's mind. But, you know, that's okay. That, when you realize that's about all you'll ever exist as, then it, the whole thing gets a lot easier to deal with. Okay, all I'll ever exist in is a projection in pretty much everybody's mind. And you get over it, you know, you stop wanting it to be different, you know. you just real, that's, that's just the way things seem to go. So I'm not saying that one shouldn't take any pleasure at all in these things. That's not the problem. The problem is when you think, I need this to be happy. And these are things that seem so central, though, that most people never question them. They never ask themselves, do I actually need all that to make me happy? And does it actually make me happy? For a moment, I feel pretty good, but really, does it... They're so ingrained in our consensus reality that these things make one happy, that we just pursue and pursue and pursue and pursue. We never really look at, Does this working out for me? So that's a big part of spirituality, is just having the willingness to see this stuff. Because as I said long time before me, you know, the truth shall set you free. It's the truth that sets you free. It's, it ain't getting what you want. I mean, look at all of us in this room. I mean, for God's sake, look at us. I mean, some of us may or may not have jobs. Some of us may or may not have lots lots of money. I mean, everybody has their own dilemmas to go on in life. But compared to the average person in the world, you know, to sit around thinking we haven't got much of what we wanted, I mean, please. We are in the top echelon of humanity. We may not be... In the top echelon of our society, we may not be millionaires or something like that. But in the terms of humanity as a whole, for the most part, we're way, 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 way past halfway. Way past the average as far as what we have and what we own and the lifestyle that we live. That even includes people that don't live a great, fantastic lifestyle or might not think they do. I think most of us in this room right now are not starving to death. We're not worrying about some despot sending in his militia to wipe out our village and our family. And you know. And these things are not rare in the world, of course. These things happen all over the place. Why aren't we there? Why are we here in this room, in this beautiful room? It doesn't necessarily make us any happier. The other part of spirituality is when you when you start to allow your experience just to be then you see of course we don't like this because what you start to feel sometimes if you're meditating especially if you're somewhat new and sometimes even if you're not new if you've been doing it for years you can have your old sort of addictive patterns they'll move up into your consciousness you'll start to feel them and you'll be sitting there in a room like this doing absolutely nothing you know nothing's really happening to you and you'll feel this tremendous sense of uncomfortability you know like, I need something that I'm not getting, I want something, I, you know, this this strange illogical sense of uncomfortability or incompleteness or unworthiness or whatever it might be will just come upon you. That's things that we've been, either emotional states we're addicted to or when we've been told things that simply are not true and they just start to bubble up into your consciousness. And, of course, the other part of spirituality is really the courage. The courage to question, because it takes, it really takes courage, really. I mean, certain questions aren't, don't take a lot of courage, but it takes, it takes real courage to really question things all the way through. To not be afraid of where you let your questioning take you. Because if you question greatly, deeply, it will take you far outside of what you know. Of probably what most of the people around you consider to be the sort of consensus based reality. We often leave such kind of courage to other people. Well, okay, 2,500 years ago, the Buddha did a lot of questioning and it worked out for him. And so I'll just follow what he came up with. <laughs> you know? Instead of doing what he did, I'll just follow his conclusions and hope it works out somehow. Jesus was a great questioner. I mean, talking about somebody who did not go along with consensus reality, in the modern day, we would probably call him like a grade A muckraker. Just shook the muck up, just rattled people's cages. I remember when I was reading through the Gospels a while back, and you know, you always hear Jesus having these very biting criticisms of the Pharisees. Those of you who've written through the Gospels know he's, he's got his worst vehement criticisms for the Pharisees. And I was reading through these things and all of a sudden realized, oh, the Pharisees, that's us. That's us. I mean, his time it was, you know, people in the religious hierarchy and people in power and the people abusing power and all that kind of stuff. But basically, what he, was, he wasn't criticizing them simply because they were in places of power. That wasn't the problem he had with them. He wasn't criticizing because they were in the religious hierarchy. That wasn't the problem he had with them. The problem he had with them was hypocrisy. This overwhelming sense of hypocrisy, selfishness, greed putting others down. Seeing others as stepping stones for their own ambition. Of course, we all like to identify with the heroes in any story, don't we? You ever notice that? You go to a movie, it's just natural to identify with the hero of the movie, the best person in the movie. Yes, I'm pretty much like that. (laughs) I understand them the most. So you read through the Gospels and, you know, at the very least, you're trying to be like a disciple, right? At the very least, you aspire to the level of the disciple, you know? But the disciples, of course, don't come up to a very high level for the most part in the Gospels. They're they're always, you know, Jesus had (laughs) reserved... They were right under the Pharisees in the aim of his criticism. He was often being very critical of his own disciples. Bless their hearts. They tried so hard. Or of course, everybody, oh, I would love to see myself as Jesus and all that kind of thing. But that questioning, of course, in Jesus's, there wasn't so much questioning, there was a direct confrontation. But like I said, we can read these amazing stories, but we will cast out of ourselves that kind of confrontation and we'll say, well, it has to do with them, instead of saying, that can actually sell me a lot about myself. Like I said, the Buddha started to question about Well, it took him actually quite a long time to start to really question. And he began with the question, is there any way out of this dreadful suffering that seems to be part of of the human condition? Samsara, suffering, led him on his quest. He then followed the prescribed methods of his day, left home and family, became a sadhu, a wandering aesthetic, half starved himself to death, did lots of spiritual disciplines. He did, he did everything he was supposed to be doing for someone who was really, really, really committed. And yet at the end of the day, it didn't really work out for him. And he was sort of ended up despondent and this isn't working and half dead. And it was only when he got to that place, what would they call that in modern terminology? Having talked about addiction, I think you might have the word for it, bottoming out right? The Buddha bottomed out. You mean the big guy bottomed out? Yeah. Buddha definitely bottomed out. Despondent, half dead, it's not working for me. And he bottomed out. And when he bottomed out, one of the first things he did was he started to break through the conventional wisdom. As I've said many times before, the first thing he did was a no-no. It was what you were decidedly not supposed to do if you were a a sadhu, if you were a spiritual holy man on the quest for enlightenment, you were not to take food from a woman. Seems completely ridiculous nowadays, doesn't it? And of course, that was the convention. Of course, what wasn't seen at that time was, the woman wasn't the problem, it was the guy's raging hormones that was the problem. That was the problem, we'll just deal with that by not having anything to do with women, which tends to make the hormones rage even more, but that's a whole other sad tale. <laughs> Dealing something through avoiding it never is a really good strategy. And so there he was. He took this food from a woman, and that was the first breaking through of convention. This conventional reality, this agreed-upon thing, it's not working out so, without even really probably being aware of what he was doing. He broke through convention. He did something he wasn't supposed to do. And lo and behold, he found out it's all right. Actually, I needed that. I needed to take nourishment so I could think straight, so my body was in somewhat healthy. He might have very much needed to allow himself to experience a kind of more, what we might call in the modern day, a kind of more feminine energy, you know, to allow in a kind of softness, which is probably even more important than taking the food and all that stuff, was he started to soften up a little bit. So anyway, there he finds himself under the Bodhi tree, and by that time, he's, he's in full question mode. One of his fundamental realizations that got him to that was that, I've done everything that I was supposed to do, in fact, he'd gotten quite good at it, you know, he'd go into states of samadhi, he could do all those things that were supposed to remove suffering, and he finally saw, this hasn't worked, I can still suffer. I've done everything I'm supposed to do in a certain sense. I've damn near perfected everything it's supposed to help me to not suffer, and I'm still suffering, breaking through convention again. Apparently, the way this has been taught to me isn't true. It's not true because he's experienced it not to be true. And so, once again, he's cast out even further into his aloneness. I think this is one of the things that most human beings we are somewhat uncomfortable with, is our own aloneness. We are very sort of tribal when we get right down to it. We want our company and agreement, and we like consensus reality because everybody agrees upon it. it. Makes you feel like you're not too strange, you're not too weird, you're not too out there. It's comforting. So this is the courageous part too because when we start to question the nature of things, we often find ourselves at some point, we have to become either willing or comfortable one or the other to be in our own aloneness to be in a kind of, a certain degree of aloneness. Because it's the aloneness where you start to move outside of all the assumed upon realities. And a lot of those assumed upon realities that you will have to move beyond are spiritual assumed realities too. There's as much nonsense and crapple and spirituality as there is in everything else in life. In fact, there may be a good dose more as far as I can see. And the reason is because we reserve some of our greatest sort of fantasies and imaginations for the spiritual realm. These two forces, one is sort of soft and allowing your experience to be the way it is, allowing the world to be the way it is, allowing everything to experience what it's like when there's a moment of allowing this moment to be the way it is. People are trying to come into the moment. You know, it's a big thing now, right? Be in the now, be in the moment, be in the present moment. Actually, the thing is, I would like to see somebody not being in the moment. I've never seen that yet. People's problem isn't that they're not in the moment. The problem is that they can't escape the moment. That's what everybody wants to do. That's taking drugs and all these things they do. I'm trying to get away from this dreadful moment, you see. The moment is my problem. So maybe, this is how cunning our minds are, maybe if I can be in this moment, because I'm told by the spiritual teachers is a good idea to be in the present moment, but maybe if I'm really in the present moment by some weird sleight of hand, I don't know how this works, but somehow if I can be in the moment in just the right way, it will allow me to not be in this moment. (laughs) I don't know how that'll work but maybe it'll work. Do you see, you know what I mean? Maybe if I can be in this moment it'll somehow get me out of this dreadful moment. Because I think if most people were to tell the truth the problem that they're having is this moment. that's what they think. Because this moment is where my angst or my anxiety or my upset or my resentment or my blame or my judgment, all that's happening in this moment, you see? And that's what I want to get away from. So you set yourself up a contradiction. You're trying to be in a moment without ever telling yourself that really the truth is you don't want to have anything to do with the moment. And as soon as you can start to see that you really don't want to have anything to do with this moment, because everybody has their own reason, right? because I feel like this, or this happened in my past, it's happening now, or there's lots of reasons. All of which might seem, well, reasonable. Only then can you really look and go, okay, again, how's this working out? To be spending my life trying to not be in the moment that I'm in, how's it working out? To be constantly trying to escape the moment, which means what I experience, what I feel, what I think, all of that. The world as it is, by constantly trying to alter the moment, how is it working out? So most people's experience, I think, of being in the moment is they're in the moment because there's quite literally nowhere else to be, which is a big part of their problem. But they're in the moment with a constant attempt to get out. So what they're experiencing about the moment is their constant sense of trying to have something different happen in the moment. What really to be in the moment means, it doesn't mean be in the present moment, because you can't be anywhere else. What it really means is check out what it's like to be in the present moment without trying to be in some other moment. That's what it really means. It just means drop your resistance to the present moment, see how it goes. And of course, you drop your resistance about the time you see that your resistance isn't working out for you. That's the beautiful and terrible thing about meditating, is you see all the ways that you're trying to change and alter and control your experience. You're seeing that you can't change, alter, and control your experience. And at some point, at any point actually, doesn't have to take time, but at some point, something in you might just stop stop means it stops trying to change the moment it just stops and then it's fine what's the difference after all of somebody who's happy and somebody who's not the happy person's not trying to change the moment you think they're not trying to change it because it's going smashingly well for them but it's actually going smashingly well for them because they're not trying to change it because I've met people, many people, who are no longer trying to change the moment, much less any moment in the past. I've met people that have seemingly great, great reasons for wanting to change the moment. I've met people who their whole life just seems to be a litany of one awful disaster, nightmare after another, for decades. Someone like that, you'd think, they've got all the reason in the world to want to change their experience, to want to change the moment. And I've seen people with just those kind of histories and pasts that realize that all that leads to is unhappiness. And all of a sudden they just stop trying to change the moment. And they all of a sudden realize it's
3: fine.
4: Somebody with all the reasons in the world why they should be struggling, to justify their struggle. So and so did such and such to me and they've got all the reasons in the world, and maybe many of them seem very justified. So if somebody with all the reasons in the world to struggle against life can let go, well, geez, pretty much anybody can, as soon as they see that it doesn't work. And when this happens to a very deep degree, you don't know it actually, but you're actually dropping all of your boundaries between you and life. Because a big part of the ego structure, which is just patterns of thinking and then, of course, generating patterns of feeling. A big part of the ego structure is defined by what it's against. No against, no egoic boundaries. That's one thing in a room like this, isn't it? It's nice, peaceful, no one's pushing your buttons. Then you go out into the world The old mind thinks, okay, well, that was nice. That was a very spiritual morning, well and good. Okay, but now it's my turn. (laughs) And out here, I know what should be happening.
5: (laughs) I feel like I have an expectation that if I meditate the way that you're saying to rest and let everything be as it is, that, And I know I've heard many times that if I expect that something is going to happen, I'm not letting everything be as it is. Yeah. and There's yet, the catch. Yeah. And yet you can't help
4: it. Right. Right. There's the other catch. <laughs> I've said it many, many times over the years, that I don't propose that my spiritual path has to be your spiritual path, and in fact, I very much hope it isn't. <laughs> But I've defined my own spiritual path was actually the path of failure. And just the kind of thing you're talking about, spirituality, it's fraught with these paradoxical dilemmas. You're like, I'm not supposed to be anticipating a future. Well, if you want to anticipate, anticipate. I'm just trying to allow everything to be as it is, but I can't really allow everything to be as it is, because as soon as I try to allow, then I'm actually involved in seeking a result. In a certain sense, I'm stuck. I don't know which way to go. What I want to convey, or just try to help mirror back to you, is when you feel that way, that's the sacred space. That's it. It is by living in that dilemma, in that contradiction, that you elicit something else from within yourself. Because that's really what you're doing. You're really eliciting a deeper response, a deeper truth, a deeper reality from yourself. We can see when we're caught in a catch-22, right? If I go left, that doesn't work. If I go right, if I go up, if I go down, if I try, if I don't try, if I try to surrender but trying to surrender isn't surrender, uh uh-oh, I'm stuck. Anything I do almost feels like the wrong thing. And so we're always jumping through sort of more complex abstract hoops to try to somehow get out of that. What I'm saying though is that's actually the very place you want to be because you're much closer to truth there than you are anywhere else.
5: In the paradox.
4: That's right. This is totally counterintuitive to most people. When you're caught by something you can't get out of, if you can't get out of it, you can't get out of it, can you? If you can't get out of it, what are you struggling against? You see, the thing is, is we don't need to get out of anything. We are caught for one reason and one reason only, we are caught because we're trying to get out. The whole thing is the effort to try to get out, to escape, even one's own inner dilemmas. The effort to try to get out and escape from them is what not only keeps you caught, but it is literally what produces the feeling of being caught in the first place. Because the worst that can ever happen, and it can get pretty nasty, is to imagine that you're bound while you're actually in a state of complete freedom all the time. Since freedom isn't a place you get to, there's no, you don't ever get to a place called freedom, enlightenment, liberation. It is the state currently in which everything and everybody exists, whether we believe that or not. It's all of our efforts to get somewhere else that's concealing the sense of freedom in the moment. So all my efforts to get away are actually what's concealing the freedom that I'm actually living in the moment. So I say, if you're caught, then be caught. Just be caught all the way.
5: Somehow in order to stop being caught.
4: Right, because then you're not really being caught. That's kind of just a subtle version of I'll be in this moment because maybe that'll get me out of it.
5: I guess I also have a kind of a romantic notion that I'll see something and then I won't be caught anymore. Right. Because it's perpetuated by the spiritual traditions. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Is it not so? That I'll see something and then well, I'll Oh, you might eating. see
4: something. I'm try- That's what I'm trying to help you to see. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Thank you for trying. <laughs>
4: don't you see? You're making it all up in your mind. You're imagining that you're caught. You're imagining that you need to let go. You're imagining all of this.
0: That was Ajishanti, an American spiritual teacher based in Santa Cruz, California. If you're interested in hearing more of Ajishanti, there's lots of his talks on YouTube.
6: And the future never comes. What And the future never comes. What comes is always here now. And because of your habit of worrying About the future, you will waste that movement also for worrying. And because of your habit of worrying about the future, you will waste that movement also for worrying. your And because of your habit Of worrying about the future You will waste that movement Also for worrying And because of your habit
3: blowing, the trees are waving, your nerves are tingling. The individual and the universe are inseparable. But the curious thing is, very few people are aware of it. Everything in nature depends on everything else. So it's interconnected. We confuse ourselves as living organisms, which are one with this whole universe, with something we call our personality. And what is our personality? And our fundamental self is not something just inside the skin. It's everything around us with which we connect. When you look out of your eyes at nature happening out there, you're looking at you. That's the real you. The you that goes on of itself. When you look out of your eyes at nature happening out there, you're looking at you. That's the real you. The you that goes on of itself. Now listen, it seems that the human being Really has a very simple kind of mind. Nature is wiggly. Everything wiggles. And all this wiggliness is too complicated. Everything in nature depends on everything else. So it's a You're breathing. The wind is blowing. The trees are waving.
1: underneath all the circumstances. So when you say I, and point to the I as that which doesn't change,
0: That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.